Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Continuing our series today, Jesus Goes Global, Confronting the Power Base, with a message titled, The One True God. So let's turn in our Bibles to Acts 17, 24 to 34, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Most people tend to believe in God, but all people suppress the knowledge of God. And in place of the knowledge of the one true and living God, they replace him with idols. It was John Kelvin that said that the human heart is an idol factory. It produces idols by the score. People replace the knowledge of the one true God with images of either what they find in nature or with images of what they find in their own imaginations. The gods that men and women worship are gods of their own making, the creations they have produced. We've been studying Paul's arrival in the city of Athens. It's a city that had more idols than it had people. It was a city of philosophers, academics, and religion. And looking at it from modern eyes, we might think that whatever cultural reality was found in that ancient city, it's almost entirely foreign to us today. I mean, most modern day countries and cultures don't have idols, although some do. But the reality of idolatry is always a part of the human experience. Because we're created in the image of God, we long to worship. We long to express adoration, praise, exaltation. And since we're fallen, estranged from the one true and living God, we replace the worship of the one God with the worship of idols. Idols are whatever we worship that is not God. It might be that we worship the gods and goddesses of the Greeks and the Romans, or the many gods of the various religions, or it might also be that we worship nature, or that we worship something humans have made, like great works of art or music. We might worship other human beings, or even political leaders, sports figures, those in show business. But we long to adore, to magnify, to exalt, and to bestow glory on something. And for that reason, when Paul entered into Athens and when he saw the idols, his heart was provoked. But then through a series of events that we discussed in our last study, he was given a chance to explain the nature of the one true God. He's already pointed out that one statue in the city was dedicated to the unknown God. That was his place of beginning. That which you don't know, this I declare to you, he said. And with that, he begins. We'll notice that since none of his audience had knowledge of the God of Revelation, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Paul doesn't actually quote Scripture. But what he does say to them is remarkably scriptural. He starts at the very place where they're keen to hear. And that's the lesson we need to take to heart. When we share the gospel, start where people are ready to listen. And in Athens, people were concerned with all their gods. Perhaps they had left one out, and that's Paul's opening. He will use that to declare the true God. But where does one start this discussion? Now, as we're going to see, Paul makes a number of declarations about God designed exactly at his hearers. His first declaration is that the God who truly exists is the creator of all that exists. So let's read Acts 17, 24 and 25. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Notice Paul's first point. 
the God who made the world and everything in it. Paul's not proclaiming another deity or another idol. He's proclaiming news of the creator of everything, things visible and things invisible. If there's anything that's ever come into being, it exists because of this one creator who brought it into being. Now, the Stoic and Epicurean philosophers were pantheistic, and interestingly, Paul doesn't begin by attacking their view, though most certainly Paul is a monotheist. But he bypasses that argument, at least at the beginning, by appealing to the Creator. Now, the idea of an absolute Creator would have been very hard for these men to grasp, because after all, this was the unknown God. This was the God they'd never considered. But once this idea of a creator God is granted, well then, says Paul, two things have to follow. The first is simply this. God then doesn't live in temples built by hands. Now, this idea wouldn't have been entirely foreign to the philosophers in Athens. It was the great Plato himself who had thought that worship of the heavenly bodies, that is the sun, moon, and the planets, was superior to anything that was found in any temple. And two other philosophers, Zeno and Seneca, had utterly scorned the idea of temples. But of course, Paul's not getting his thoughts from the philosophers, but from the scripture. When Solomon built the temple, he had said that much. 1 Kings 8:27. But will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven, the highest heaven, cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. And that's true. If God created all things, he's not held in a temple. Paul's still not done in drawing out the truths that come from believing in a creator of everything. He says this creator is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Now, that truth, that God needs nothing, that's also biblical. Psalm 50, verse 12, if I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world in its fullness is mine. That is to say, I mean, God's never hungry, but if he was, he certainly wouldn't come to human beings and ask them to meet his needs. The one true God needs nothing outside of himself. And by the way, that needs to be said loudly to Christians today who sometimes foolishly assume that God created us because he was lonely. I mean, what a pagan thought that is. I mean, if God were lonely and he's not, but if he were, he certainly wouldn't tell you and ask you to meet his unmet needs. Don't you see? And interestingly enough, the Greeks on Mars Hill, you know, some of the philosophers would have agreed with Paul on this point. But the gods of Athens were gods who were constantly using each other and people as well to get what they want. The idea of appeasing the gods who were fickle, that was a part of Greek mythology. And yet the Epicureans taught that the gods need nothing from human beings, and the Stoics also agreed with that. And so up to this point, everyone's listening, and they're actually nodding the idea of a creator. Well, that they don't know, but they do know those other two things. Well, Paul's leading them now to a second declaration, and the second declaration is that God providentially rules over all human beings. So let's read that now in Acts 17, 26-27a. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Paul is again presenting the content of Scripture. From one man, he says, God made all human beings who exist. And Paul, of course, is speaking of Genesis 1 and 2. He's speaking of Adam. And that's an important point because of those in our day who wish to see the creation account in Genesis as merely a poem or an allegory rather than real history. 
Genesis 2 verse 7 describes God creating Adam from the dust of the ground, that is, from the elements of the earth, and then God breathes his breath into him. And then Adam is given the task of naming the animals in creation, and in his task, he is to understand the world that God has made, but Adam has no helper. And so God creates the woman from the man. Yeah, Paul takes the creation account in Genesis literally and not figuratively. You know, for Paul, the creation of one man from whom came the entire human race, that's a historical fact. You know, for the philosophers in Athens who had no knowledge of the Bible, Paul simply affirms that the Creator made one man and from him made all other human beings. So why does Paul say that? Well, because he wants to make plain to the philosophers that the God whom he is proclaiming is not the Jewish God alone. He is the God of all humanity. And that leads Paul to make a declaration. God, this one God, providentially oversaw the creation of all the nations on earth. And furthermore, God providentially oversaw the geographical boundaries of those nations. And furthermore, God oversees how long each culture shall last and determines the boundaries of their existence. And then, Paul adds, this is a curious thought. The purpose of so arranging human nations and cultures is that the nations and the cultures of the earth should seek him. How so? You know, consider the evidence before us in Athens. The culture of the Greeks and the Romans was so far removed from the living God. And as we've already examined the paganism of the Greco-Roman world in that day, we've seen how far this paganism was from the Christian faith. But we've also seen that so much of this was hollowed out that by the time that Paul preached the gospel, that really many people were dissatisfied with those pagan gods. And that fact was arranged by the one God. He had directed this pagan culture to the place of emptiness so that at this very moment, when Paul arrived, they would hear the proclamation of Jesus. It was God's sovereign design that this nation would now at this point in time be open to the gospel. That's not only true then, it's true now. Of course, there are cultures that are closed and resistant to the gospel. But God sovereignly directs the development of culture so that there are moments of time when the knowledge of God is deeply desired by an entire people group. That's what God is up to. Hi, this is Ben Lowell, CEO of Back to the Bible Canada. You know, I wanted to thank you for your prayers, your gifts, and support towards the calendar year-end financial goal. We're so appreciative to report that the campaign was a ministry success. I can't express enough our gratitude for your generosity. Now, Back to the Bible Canada is well-equipped to begin a new year of sharing the gospel to more people in more ways than ever before. Your gifts allow this Bible teaching program to reach the ears of so many, some growing in faith, others perhaps being introduced for the first time. One listener recently wrote, God knows and cares about the intimate details of our lives, and he is using you to communicate his love and mercy and grace. Please continue to support the ministry in 2023, or even perhaps become a new monthly partner. Just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.
Paul said that God created the unique conditions of every nation so that they might grope their way toward God. He's picturing that every culture is in darkness and that they have no knowledge of how to find their way to God. And that's because even while the Bible commands people to seek God, it offers no hope that they can find him on their own. And Paul would teach on this later when he wrote the Roman Christians. You know, in chapter 1, verse 18 of Romans, he says that that which can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them in nature or in their observation of the creation. There they would learn not just that God exists and that he's the creator, but they would also learn of his eternal power. But even here, when Paul discusses, you know, this matter that we call natural revelation, he offers no hope that through natural revelation, people find God. And yet, as Paul is speaking in Athens, he wants to say that they are nearer to God than they'd ever imagined. Look at verses 27b to 28. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Now, I find Paul's speech at this moment really fascinating. He shows his familiarity with Greek thought and philosophy. And he demonstrates that by quoting two familiar Greek sayings. The first, in him we live and move and have our being. I think that was very familiar to all Greeks. The Greeks would have used that saying in a, you know, pantheistic sense. I mean, for them, it meant that the divinity was in all of nature. And of course, Paul wouldn't have meant it that way. Paul would have meant it in the sense of Psalm 139, verses 7 and 8, where it says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. See, Paul never equated nature with God the way the Greeks did. He'd already said that when he said, There is a God who created everything. But Paul also wanted to communicate that the God who created everything is not far away, but is everywhere present. Now, the second quotation that Paul gives comes from a Stoic poet. His name was Eratus of Soli, and he lived in the third century BC. Now, what Eratus meant by saying that was that we are the offspring of Zeus, but Paul doesn't mean that. Rather, he's quoting this Stoic philosopher because he wants to show the Greeks that they're groping their way to God. And they're not far off, for God created one man and from him came all people. You know, every once in a while, I hear people speaking about, you know, the brotherhood of all men. Now, there's a sense where that is, of course, true. We're all God's creation. We're all created from the same man. And furthermore, we're all in the image of God. So even while Paul disagrees with the Stoics and the Epicureans, he wants to show them that they have something in their culture that nudges them toward the one true and living God. And this is so important. If we're going to learn anything from Paul's approach, it has to be that we look for those things in every culture that are the seeds by which we can tell them of the one true God. Notice Paul has made two declarations. And the first is, there is but one creator from whom all people come. The second is that God has left within each culture some seeds of knowledge that are intended to remind them of God. Now Paul makes a third declaration, and his third declaration really is a call to turn from the darkness where they are groping and to turn to the true and living God. It's called conversion. So let's read this now in, in Acts 17, 29 to 31. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man, 
the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Subpoint number one, if you're God's offspring, why are you guys building idols? That is, if humanity is in the image of God, you are then the work of God's hands, and God is not the work of your hands. Don't you see, says Paul. You've got the whole thing the wrong way around. All of these idols aren't getting you nearer to God. They're taking you further away from God. They're leading you in the wrong direction. Subpoint number two, the times of ignorance in the past. They were overlooked by God. So Paul doesn't mean that God won't hold you accountable for your idolatry. Indeed, as we're going to see, he says judgment is coming. But what he is saying is that in the past, God sent you no corrective, no revelation. You remained in ignorance. And for those who read this today, we might wonder how God could have done that. But let's also remember that God had already revealed himself in nature. Now, it's more of a discussion that we can do now to answer the question of how God would, during the time of the Old Testament, allow the nations to walk in their own ways. I I leave that discussion to another time. But here Paul makes an announcement. Those days are over now. When Jesus called his disciples to preach the gospel to all nations, he ended the allowance of the nations to go their own ways. Missionaries would go out, evangelists, church planters, all of them would go out and must continue to be sent out. I mean, I would want to say today, every true believer is interested in missions because we know this is God's heart. Now, subpoint number three, which we might argue is, is hardly a subpoint. You know, the one true living God has fixed a day of judgment, a day when he will judge the world. You know, the unknown God will judge the world. And for this reason, the only course of action that should be left is to repent, turn from the idols, turn to the living God. You know, up to this point, we've seen that Paul has made three declarations that look like this. The first, there's but one true creator. The second, God has left seeds of knowledge in every culture, including the culture of the Athenians. And the third is the call to repent from the idols of Athens and to turn to the true and living God. Now Paul's moving to a climax, his fourth declaration, and it is as we've read, that God has sent his appointed man to the earth so that human beings would no longer be left groping in the dark. And we know with certainty that this man was sent by God because God raised him from the dead. And so, of course, Paul's been leading to Jesus you know, which would surely have been what Paul would have spoken of next. But at this point in time, Paul's speech is interrupted. Acts 17, 32 to 34. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we'll hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So why is it that the minute that Paul brings up the resurrection, the room's in an uproar? You know, some people are contradicting him, others are laughing, and still others want to hear more. I mean, what just happened here? I don't think Paul was surprised. You know, the Epicureans believed in no human existence after death. And the Stoics believed that only the spirit would survive death. All Greeks, however, believed that bodily existence was inferior to pure spirit. Plato had taught that the goal of life was to escape all bodily existence, 
for to continue to exist in bodily form. That was negative. Indeed, some Greeks even taught that lesser gods, some even suggested they were evil gods that had created physical matter. And here Paul is saying the greatest thing that's ever happened was the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead. You see what had happened? Everyone in that place was following with Paul up to this one point. But now that he mentions the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the philosophical perspective of the academics in Athens, it's simply impossible. It's silly. They rejected it. So what happens in Athens in a real way was what happened everywhere else. Some believed, and that was enough. Now, before we leave this event of Athens, we do well to ask ourselves what we make of Paul's approach to reaching the Athenians. I mean, the critics say that that Paul, by adhering to Greek thinking, messed this whole thing up. You know, in their thinking, he should have just explained the Scripture as he had done in the synagogues. But I contend that criticism is wrong. Had Paul done that, he would have given the impression that he's explaining the Jewish religion, and they would have thought it's just another religion in the ancient world. Instead, Paul was declaring not that the Jewish God should be taken seriously, but rather that the God of Abraham and the God and Father of Jesus was the only true and living God. He was proclaiming that God himself, the one who created them, was calling them to account, and that God had given his man to be their savior. And that's still the message today. We are proclaiming that there is but one God, not that our God should also be respected among others. No, no, that there is but one God, and that this one God has demonstrated who he is in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That's our message to the world today. It was then, it is now. Thanks for your message, John. Let me ask you, do you think we find ourselves as Christians sort of watering down the gospel as we increasingly present ourselves as as simply a faith option in the public forum? Yeah. You know, what? a great question. The Christian message is that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is, he is the ruling sovereign. We've never said he is a Lord or one option or a form of spirituality among the spiritualities of the world that would also be helpful or has something to contribute. We're not saying that at all. Let's be very clear. We're saying that Christ alone is Lord of heaven and earth and that he is the determining factor of the future of every single human being. We must answer to him. That's our message, and we must never compromise that. Thanks, John. Remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Jesus Goes Global, confronting the power base right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. We've been holding off, but now is the time to make an exciting announcement about In Doubt. The Young Adult Ministry of Back to the Bible Canada is now welcoming Andrew Marcus as its new host and director of In Doubt Ministries. Now, if his name rings a bell, it's probably because Andrew is an award-winning singer-songwriter and acclaimed worship leader and pastor. Andrew brings so much to the ministry, including a master's degree in theology, a huge network of Christian influencers and leaders, and most important, a vision and heart to reach young people with the truth of God's Word. 
So please pray. Pray for Andrew's leadership and pray that in doubt, with God's blessing, would have a profound impact on the spiritual journey of many young adults across our nation. To find out more, check out indoubt.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425.